Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about The Shrink Next Door, a TV series based on the serial podcast of the same name, based on a true story about a dysfunctional patient-therapist relationship, and starring Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd in unusually serious roles. It's streaming on Apple TV+. At Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter score is 58%, and the critics' consensus reads... The Shrink Next Door is a cookie full of perhaps too much arsenic, but Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd prove they're as capable of conjuring disquiet as they are of laughs. For me personally, this series was a difficult watch. There's a lot of cringe moments that were hard to quietly observe, but one aspect of the show that is independently intriguing is that the storyline spans more than three decades, and someone has to figure out what everyone is supposed to wear. That's the topic of our conversation today, and my guest is the costume designer, Helen Huang. Helen, You've been working in wardrobe since 2010, and you won an Emmy in 2016 for your work on American Horror Story. Welcome to Below the Line. Hi, nice to see you. You too, Helen. Really glad you could hop on today. Our talk will contain spoilers for the series, so listeners, this is your warning. But first, to you, Helen. How did you get started in the film industry? I actually went to art school, so I thought I was going to do illustrations and painting. And then when I came out from art school... It was 2008 and the economy was like collapsing. Nobody could get any jobs. <laughs> um, and so I worked at this uh, fine jewelry store for a bit and Vogue would come in and do polls for their shoots. And so I was like, maybe I'll try a hand at it, you know, editorials. And so I asked to be an intern there and I did get to be an intern there. Um, and, you know, I did sort of that element of it, which is I assisted on, you know, editorial shoots and stuff for a little bit. And then I got hooked up with a a commercial designer. So I assisted on commercials for a little bit after that. But I was during that time, um, someone introduced me to Deborah McGuire, who, you know, is pretty famous. She did Friends and is a, you know, an amazing designer. And I just sort of bothered her for two years, where I just, (laughs) I just emailed her constantly every six months to update her on my life, which I'm sure she appreciated. But I was like, I'm in the union. (laughs) Hire me. Drop little notes about what you're doing. Sure. And your availability. Yeah. And she was lovely because Deborah is always lovely. And then she um, hired me on a a commercial uh, with John Favreau. And then she she always has a lot of shows. So she hired me on her TV show. And as soon as I got to know scripted television, I was like, oh, yes, this is sort of what I want to do. And it's like weird because I know that not a lot of people find their occupation, the thing that they really want to do by accident. But in a way, it was sort of like um, like a detour in my life that really combined the things that I like, which is art and also clothing, but mostly like people and stories. I've always really loved that. Um, I always wanted to be an anthropologist when I was younger, you know, like Indiana Jones. And so that was the first thing that I did want to be. And so I really just think that with costuming, I do get to be a part of that. It's like sort of, you know, dress people, but think about people and culture and um, social groups a lot. So it really is kind of amazing that it turned out the way it did. What were you doing at the time when The Shrink Next Door came together? I had just finished some movies in Atlanta and I had just finished two episodes of Station Eleven in Chicago because we were filming before the pandemic. And then the pandemic happened and like nobody was working for five months. So there was a lot of uncertainty and panic. And then I got a call when things were starting to come back on that was like, um, 
it was like a mysterious email from the line producer. Like, do you want to do the show? And it's like, he didn't even put the name of the show. And I called my agent and I was like, I think someone, can you reach out to them? Like, I don't know <laughs> like what this is about. And I realized that it was Michael Showalter that was directing and producing it with Georgia Pritchett. And Michael, it was funny enough because I met him on an interview for like a movie. And I guess he must have remembered me because he called me and was like, hey, you want to do this? And so... I was very excited actually, because, you know, I had watched like a lot of, you know, newer shows on the eighties and I just really wanted my take on it because I really love the eighties and I feel like people always make fun of it. And so I was very determined to do something where we're not making fun of it. Even if the actors are Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd, I refuse to make fun, like design from a perspective of like making fun of the subject matter or the decade or anything like that. And so I interviewed and Michael was like, we really wanted to be sort of cinematic and film-like. And, you know, I had researched so much street photography from New York at the time, like Bruce Davison, Robert Herman, Janet Delaney. Um, and I just thought I, we could make this like so beautiful. But of course, with the pandemic happening, you know, like we could only do sort of a portion of what I think the scope they wanted it to be, you know. Mm. So you said you had started Station Eleven. They went on hiatus because of COVID. Yes. But the shrink next door was starting under COVID conditions yes. and planned to shoot their episodes, you know, with the restrictions and such in place. And you were able to come on as the designer at that point then. Yeah. Because it was really hard. Everyone was trying to figure out, like, should we move production to a place where there's, like, less COVID, you know? When I finished Shrink, I went to Station Eleven to start doing that. And, like, they had moved their production to Canada because Canada at that time had, like, lower COVID cases. But they were on shutdown. So it was actually, like, harder to do than a show in L.A. That's right. You did have sort of, like, the dangers of, you know, more COVID. But it was just because we weren't on lockdown, it wasn't so limited that it was actually a little bit easier, you know? Now we talked about Michael Showalter and people who might not be aware. He's also been affiliated with Search Party, The Big Sick, other projects, but you hadn't actually worked with him before. No, and I love Michael. I mean, he, him and Georgia were like literally the most perfect people that you could work under. Georgia Pritchett being the single writer for the entire series. If you like read Georgia's scripts, it was just like amazing. Like I would say her scripts were like no fat scripts, like everything connected, everything, you know, the jokes landed, everything flowed so well. And it was just like an amazing read. And her and Michael were just like very trusting people. And I tend to like, I don't know, uh, you and I talked about this kid, like it's very good when they trust you to do your job. It actually makes a big impact on you emotionally as like a department head or like a crew member because they trust that you understand their vision and then they sort of let you do your project and they let you bring ideas to them. And I think that's so different than people who think they could do your job and sort of try to micromanage the process because it actually makes it harder and the results are never better but yeah they were they, they were just like super lovely and you know and, and michael just had like great vision for it and, and georgia's scripts were like amazing so now were you familiar with the podcast before you started or was that part of your research to listen to it um, I think as soon as they told me I was interviewing for it, I'm a big like prepper in general for like interviews. So I listened to all six episodes of the podcast within a single day and then started doing visual like research for what I was going to talk about. But it was just fascinating because 
I don't know. I think people often think like real life and fantasy, they're sort of like um, separate entities, but it's just like real life is odder than anything that people could ever <laughs> sort of think of. And this is such like a human, human story, you know, because I can identify with Marty. He really wanted some sort of a change. And in the beginning, I feel like, you know, having Ike be such a definitive person about like, this is what you should do to sort of like, change your life and sort of be told that and like there's a process to it and like a mindset to it it must have been really empowering at first to where you didn't understand that you were entering into this like isolating relationship with someone it was just super fascinating now you mentioned filming under COVID conditions where did the filming take place and kind of what time frame Apple had built a studio in downtown, actually, and it was like an old beer factory that they turned into a studio. And we filmed a lot on sets. We did film in downtown LA for some of the beginning scenes of the first episode. I mean, first of all, they were going to shoot this in New York to make it look like New York, but they couldn't because of COVID because New York at the time was like worse than LA. Got it. So we just shoot downtown, but as we got going, it was just like the cases were just fluctuating all over the place that being outside on location actually became like really uncomfortable for the actors and I think the, the crew also. And so they just, they did kind of rewrite some of the scenes to where it paired back the extras and they cut the numbers and then um, made a lot more of the scenes sort of, you know, internal dialogue scenes in offices. I don't know if you could tell, but uh, there's a lot of shows that kind of filmed during that pandemic time that does have that feeling where they, you know, even though they did try, it just like didn't feel like how a regular show kind of feels because you had to isolate people so much. That's right. So they were able to press on and I'm assuming from the perspective of costume design, other than switching the order of things, not a lot of surprises, right? Because you sort of had planned out what they would be wearing during this period anyway. So even the paired back scenes was using more of the same or, or did that introduce new challenges of which I'd be unaware? Um, no, I mean, like we did crossboard uh, a lot for the whole series. Like it was done in like two parts. So four episodes was Michael, four episodes was Jesse. Jesse Perez who directed the second four episodes. Yes. And so I sort of had to map out exactly what they're wearing beforehand anyways, because all the clothes were like made. I couldn't make spare of the moment decisions anyways. You know, like I did map out Will and Paul's wardrobe like beforehand, pretty beforehand, like because everything was made, like everything Paul made, like everything, like even down to like denim and like shirts and sweatshirts, everything was printed and made for them specifically for to, to enhance the character. Like even their belts were like remade to make his character seem a little awkward. You know, we mm. made the belts really small. So then because Will's really tall to make him feel very vulnerable in that sense. But I would have loved to do sort of like, because I've been looking at the street photography, I would have loved to do big, more big background, even though it's harder sometimes, because it does create a more cinematic feel, but we didn't get to do that as much. So talk to me more about character continuity across the decades. In other words, having this idea of what Will was going to play and what Paul was going to play, and then sort of the arc you had to give them. Yeah, because we started out in 1981 in the script. And during that time period, um, through all the research that we did, people were so, because I also watched a lot of video of like literally just cameras like rolling in Central Park and like on the street, you know? And like, I think what people don't realize, and I think sometimes like why period shows don't look as real is because like people don't just have clothes from 1981. That's not 
how people work. Like people have closed like 10, 20 years ago. It depends on your economic circumstance, the type of person you are. And so you can't just be like, oh, I'm gonna wear everything <laughs> from this decade. And so with Will and Paul, we try to utilize that kind of psychological thought because also in real life, Ike is taller and Marty is a is shorter than him. And with Will and Paul's case, like Will is like six four or something, you know. And so we had to make his character Marty feel very vulnerable, and we had to make Ike feel more powerful. And the way I thought about doing that was sort of like to relegate them to like different worlds. And so with Will in particular, we tried to go for more like seventies shapes, some more late seventies things. If you saw the first episode, he was wearing like bell bottoms still in 1981 because his character Marty wouldn't have been like up to the newest things and then we also did a lot of sweatshirts and t-shirts on him and hats to make it seem like because Marty at the time especially when we started the script was like 40 and I did want to dress him like he was out of college almost you know like almost younger than what you would think he would be and also younger than the role that he had at his business and it really helped Will out because it then made him sort of seem very vulnerable to sort of how changes are during that time because there were a lot of changes during the early 80s you know for people and with Will's palette we definitely tried to make it more 70s so like a lot of bruised fruit colors like avocado greens like muted blues muted reds things that are a little bit more 70s. And then with Paul's character, we looked at all the men's magazines at the time. So like forward looking things like GQ and things like that. So for trends that were happening in men and the color palette of that, and that color palette in itself was really light, light pastels because 80s haven't gotten into saturated colors yet. So we were taking a look at sort of the differences between basically like people of sort of different interests and different economic sort of circumstances and where that was coming from. And then with Ike, so that's why he was in a lot of pinks, you know, his sweaters were like, you know, light sort of colors. And um, it was funny because when we got into a fitting with Paul, the first fitting, he was like, oh, I think Ike wore sneakers all the time. And I actually, I talked to a lot of people and I hadn't heard that, but Paul was doing his own research. And I thought that could be really fun because instead of some, someone that's more straightforward, you know, even with the kind of like lighter color palette, that would be very fun. Someone who thinks he wants to be cool, even though he's a shrink, you know? So we did find Paul a lot of like sort of 1980s, like sneakers and things like that. And he was saying, can I have a members only jacket? And I was reluctant kind of because members only is featured really heavily in all things 80s you know and so I was looking through like archival advertisement for members only and sort of doing some research on the company and I saw this ad with Larry Bird and he was in a um, leather members only and I thought that is so great and so Paul tried on a sample of something and then we remade it for the show. And so that's why he has like two members only, one in suede, one is the black one that he wears in the first episode. So it juxtaposes sort of like the seriousness of how he puts himself together with this other element of something that he aspires to be, which I find really fun. Now, you bring up an interesting point. Could you talk to me more about the input that actors like Paul Rudd or Will Ferrell will have on the costume choices and, and your design effort? You know what's so funny? They're like dream actors because they don't try to do your job again. Because a lot of <laughs> actors, like I actually like it when actors come in and they have ideas of their characters because 
I like emotional notes from actors, things, you know, like things that they do in preparation for the role, I find very interesting. And with those sort of thoughts, it's usually like, it'll add another layer and the fitting is always better because you come out with something better, you know. But sometimes actors will come in and they don't want to try certain things on because they... And I find this more in contemporary outfits that they can't separate themselves from the character. You know, and that's some actors, some actors aren't like that. They're very sort of process oriented and really want to get into character and they really want to look different than themselves, you know. With period, it's a little bit easier because the clothing is already removed from them. And so they tend to be more open to wearing certain things. But like Will and Paul just came in and, and was like, do what you want. And I think that's a reason why they look so good in their films. If you ever seen Will Ferrell, he like completely transforms in every film. But I think it's because he gives himself up to the process of being costumed and being changed through clothes. Actually, sort of like, I would say the spirit animal for Marty for his clothes was actually um, Stephen Hawking's. Because <laughs> <laughs> I saw a bunch of photos from him in the 70s. And I was like, that's that's Marty right there. But yeah, they really gave themselves up to the process. And, you know, except for the notes Paul had about the shoes and the members only, he was also really open to what I brought to sort of the character. And I think it's quite amazing. Um, it's like the the two of them as, uh, I think, just in general people that trust the crew around them to do their jobs. Now, Helen, you mentioned earlier about uh, cross-boarding the entire series and that you could shoot the scenes from any episode in the order they needed to be. And so was the filming actually that way? Like, in other words, did you shoot out the 80s before moving forward in time? Or was there some back and forth that you had to deal with? I think because of the scripts and because how they divided up the scripts. So like one through four did focus on the 80s. So it went from 81 to 83. So that was all Michael's block. And then Jesse Peretz shot the five through eight. And then that was more like moving through the decades, like really, really fast. So it did end up where we could plan it by blocks, which was actually a godsend because, you know, if it had been more back and forth, I think it would have been a little bit harder to do all the research, you know, that we needed to do. Because also, like, because the 80s were so extensively researched by us, I did not want the back half to feel like we just slapped some shit together <laughs> and, and was like, these things are short, so this is what it is. I really wanted the characters to feel like as if they're evolving, but also to say something very true about the decade that they're in. Oh, yeah, understood. And I think to your point, and it's really fascinating, that idea of the 80s is not just the 80s. And when you see a movie that is making fun of the 80s, there mm -hmm. is literally a members-only jacket and a Rubik's Cube in everybody's hand, right? To sort of draw that kind of attention. But to tell the story, you need to actually, it needs to be accurate and yet not sort of overwhelm what's happening. And so... Yeah. But also, you know, when people do the 80s, they like to do 85 and 86, which is like you know, the working girl time period, which is when it got really extreme. But if you look at the 80s, like before and after that, it's not that anymore. But also like, you know, if you're looking at MTV 80s, it's different than like what people are regularly wearing. Like, I, I think that's the thing that people have to understand about costuming is like, you're looking at different aspects of society. You know, if you're looking at MTV 80s, it's like these people are wearing things for stage. You know, they're like rock stars. So there's a reason why they're dressed like that. But like, you know, someone just like walking down the street of New York, that's not their objective to like look like that, you know, and especially if they're like 40, you know, like it's like not, 
but our memories of the decade. Yeah. Like what we remember from the media or the television of the decade yeah. might overwhelm what we actually wore or did yeah, ourselves yeah, in that yeah. period. Yeah, which is why it's doing the research. Like, I didn't rely on memory at all. I didn't really try to assume that I knew what anything looked like. Well, let's go deeper into the 1980s and talk about some of those scenes that made up those first four episodes. From a scene perspective, what stood out to you about those challenges? One of the biggest challenges was like, you know, when we had to do the bar mitzvah in the 80s, we really wanted to get it right. Michael was very... Uh, he stressed the importance of that. He really wanted to show modern Orthodox Judaism at that time period because that was what was happening in like the Upper West, Upper East Side, like those type of synagogues. So we actually had, you know, rabbi consultants for it. My husband is Jewish, so I talked to a lot of family friends, um, had them sort of send pictures for references. And we actually looked up a lot of sort of Getty images on what that would look like to get the tone of how people are dressed, men and women, um, what they really liked. We spoke to a number of family friends that lived in New York through that time. So they were describing like where they would shop and how it would look. And they did also have a consultant on set just to make sure that everything was right. That was challenging just because it was a lot more extras than we dealt with. If there was a, a constant stress on sort of getting it very period accurate and understanding like the culture that Marty is from. And then also like the, the weird element of the party afterwards with his t-shirts and stuff like that was, you know, obviously a fabricated thing. But then to sort of look at that and be like, how does that look different than his bar mitzvah in the 50s? Because there's one scene as a flashback to his bar mitzvah in 1956. Yeah. And like what that would look like. And they did want to show, you know, I, and also like Marty's parents were more affluent than we depicted on the show. And so it was trying to find that right balance of like upper middle class type of aesthetic for the bar mitzvah in the 50s. And we looked at a lot of pictures and a lot of videos for how people dressed and covered up, especially the women during that time period. Now we're talking about the challenges of it being the 80s, being a formal event, and having a lot of background in these scenes. Yeah. Certainly you weren't able to fabricate everything that people had there. Like, talk to me about the just the logistical challenge of pulling those scenes off. I mean, the logistical challenge was trying to find enough things to sort of dress people as. This is one of the reasons why we made Paul and Will's clothes from scratch was because like a lot of times in the costume houses, they have the same sort of thing like repetitively. And so my biggest challenge was like trying to find different elements of how people could look. So like how younger people could look, how older people could look, just so to make it real because you don't want to populate the world with a bunch of people that look so cookie cutter, that look so similar to each other, you know? But then the challenges of COVID was like, we couldn't prefit these people because they didn't want us in contact with that many people and then be in contact with our main actors. And so we had to fit them on the day. And that was especially hard because it was just so chaotic at the time because, you know, before COVID, like people could come up to you and talk to you. During COVID, it's like you have what, like 50, 100 extras and they need to like things that they have to learn, like stand away from you. You need to stand away from them when you're dressing, like you can be in contact all the time. So it was it was really hard. It did take a lot longer than we thought. As you would know, Kate, like the AD team was like sort of <laughs> mind blown about this process. And we did that the first day because you just didn't understand like how long it would take to dress that many people during COVID and for people to like sort of go through the process of it. 
I'm sure you faced similar logistical challenges with another scene from the 80s, and that would be the Penn Gala. But talk to me first about the sort of creative influences you brought to designing the clothing for that. We actually utilize a lot of Getty images to research sort of like parties from the 1980s. So it's like for the Penn Gala, and then we also did for the Broadway play, we actually sort of went through the Getty image archive to look at sort of like different parties and sort of the different types of people that would go to those type of things. And again, like just in terms of gowns, like how people feel when they dress up. And if you also actually think of that time period, like people don't have stylists back then. And so like people dress in a variety of ways when they arrive, you know, at these things. So it was really about actually, again, like deciphering sort of like, are you in entertainment? What would you wear? Are you sort of old New York society? Like, what would you wear to the Penn Gala? And then a big debate with the Penn Gala was about like how Hannah was dressed because we wanted her to feel very familiar to Marty and also pretty, but to sort of stand out from the crowd, which is why she was wearing definitely something that was a lot more 70s than everyone else sort of in the crowd. And then with Ike, I forgot who it was that I was researching and he had on a white tuxedo jacket and I thought that's Ike right there. And so no one else had a white tuxedo jacket in the whole entire scene and only Paul as Ike did to really sort of make him pop as the character and how he feels that he should stand out at this party. But again, same sort of thing. We weren't allowed to prefit. It took a a lot more time. We actually did the Penn Gala and the Broadway play stuff in one day. It was just wow. like the the, <laughs> the most chaotic day. And if you if you you know it's like it's like one of those days where it feels like you're on a hamster wheel and the hamster wheel <laughs> would never would never stop. <laughs> Like, it just felt like it it would just go on forever. I think people think, like, film is, like, very glamorous. But sometimes, I mean, it's 100% not glamorous. Like, if you (laughs) think you want to be glamorous, do not get into this industry. That you are wrong. That is not going to make you happy. It's a lot of hard work, a lot of prep, a lot of, like, problem solving. But there are days where you are just like, man can it just end <laughs> and not because you're you hate the job or anything but just because it's just so overwhelming well those are a couple of the large scenes that that took place in those episodes <laughs> what about some of the smaller scenes or other things from the 80s that were particularly challenging or rewarding to you i really love doing phyllis and bonnie because also again that was a part of my because you know everything i get into every show that i ever do i have a perspective that I want to bring to it, some sort of goal that I want to meet. And this was in the beginning part of it, it was to show the 80s in a full spectrum. And I felt also like Phyllis and Bonnie was like really good to show because it was again, like not that big hair, like humongous shoulder pad type of thing. So with them, I really worked at getting them to look natural. So Phyllis was really relegated to Marty's palette of like browns and avocado colors and and bruise colors but I did want her to feel like she's more engaged with the world so she was definitely a lot less 70s than Marty was but I did want her to feel like she was a working woman like I'm very particular about how women are shown on film and television and like for me it's like the more I can exercise like this is what a working woman looks like you know she's not prancing around on heels you know this is what what a, a woman who has kids look like. And I think Catherine Hahn was so on board 
with it that it was just such a joy. Like she really liked to get into character. So it was like such a joy to work on. And then Casey who played Bonnie was also kind of like that where, you know, Michael's note on her was like he wanted her to look very small and to look kind of like chaotic, like Ike is in their house. And so Ike was obviously so much more colorful in these like beautiful pastels. And so I wanted her to feel like not in terms of muted colors that Marty was in, but like more saturated 70s colors. And we looked a lot on like Sears catalogs and stuff like that to sort of build her wardrobe and to make the pieces for her wardrobe. So then she's in contrast with Phyllis, but also in, in contrast with Ike because Ike is such sort of like a clothes horse, a fashion-y type of person, at least in his head, right? And then she's, she's trying, but she's not quite at that level. And then also to, and Casey had this, to transition her to where, you know, after they sort of like bonded to Marty's sort of economic, his money, like she, she changes a little bit and wears better things. Well, Helen, that seems like a nice lead into the 90s where they have bonded. And a lot of these scenes in the 90s and probably in the 2000s as well are these parties at the Hamptons. Uh, yeah. Talk to me kind of about the transition between decades and then what you had to do different or new. Well, a big transition in that 90s period was like Ike's transition, right? So a big part of the 80s was Marty's transition. And a big part of like the 90s was Ike's transition. So they did want Ike to feel like he's become Mr. Hamptons, right? And so when he arrived at the Hamptons in episode five, we actually bought him, they, they were things that they called, like, I forgot what they were called. They were called like sweatsuits or something like that. It was just kind of like a, a nylon top with like nylon shorts. And so we sort of sourced that and bought the set and made it for Ike. And so for him to wear that when he's coming in and then like later on an episode for him to come in wearing like tennis whites from the Hamptons. So it shows his sort of aspirations for this period and this place that he's, he's at, you know, and we did research a lot of like how people looked at the Hamptons and how they dressed and sort of wanted to transition Marty into something brighter because like during that beginning of the nineties, he was feeling, even though he was isolated from his sister, he was feeling better, you know? And then when we sort of like jumped the decades, there was so much research on like, again, using, you know, street photography and Getty images. We actually looked at like Palm Beach a lot in Florida too, to see what kind of like that old money for that time period um, looked like. And so there was a lot of prep in that to sort of be like, you know, how do we create sort of iconic costumes for them as they move through the decade. Um, and so like with Ike and stuff, we really tried to make his suits very, very period accurate, you know, as they jump through periods. So it's like very recognizable as they move through it. But also with the parties, it was sort of like putting Ike in a little bubble and making his costumes the most fabulous possible. And then everyone else sort of wearing clothes from that time period first and then doing the costume element, you know, after. Right, because we've got the safari party, we have some sort of Mexican theme party, it's a pirate party, but that's very interesting. You start with Ike as being sort of the universe that he's imagining and people yeah. are sort of the center of that universe. And then what other folks wear to sort of emphasize that. And the other folks, uh, the purpose of them is to show the decade jumps. So that's why we started with the close of that decade. And then we added on sort of like the costume elements that could come to it, you know. So we didn't want it to be like a full masquerade because that's 
you know, that, that seemed really wrong. It was about like people sort of like, if you were going to a theme party, like the things from your closet that would make up what, what you would wear to like a, a theme party. And as we got into like 96 and 97, it was like, it was sort of like really, really weird because uh, I, I realized I didn't know what anybody wore during that decade. Like I had no memory of like, <laughs> we were doing our research <laughs> and I was like, this is what people wore? <laughs> like what is, what's happening? But I think that's what it is. Like people don't don't remember. Like if you think about the 90s, what would you remember? Early 90s, right? As in context, like grunge and things like that. In terms of your memory, nobody remembers what the late 90s wore. So it's like, it's it's also that weird, like, what did you grab onto? How can we break that sort of stereotypical thing? So other than the Hampton parties, talk about some of the other scenes from those decades. Well, I really love basketball in the 90s. Mostly because like Paul's outfit was like Paul and well, both their outfits were really fun to like me. And I think that's one of the reasons why, because like, you know, the show gave me the luxury of like, if I wanted to make a tank top from scratch, I, I did, you know? And so like Ike's tank top was like bought, dyed, then printed on to show the decade that it's in, you know, for his outfit. And I just thought it was like immense fun to sort of go into detail, like that much detail for something that people would never know that was like completely like remade from like scratch. I also thought like, because they were in the Hamptons and people were more casual, I was really focused on sort of the type and print from every decade from those 90s decades. So we we actually had a, our art team had a graphic designer that was amazing. And we would send him like images of vintage t-shirts and he would copy like the exact graphics you know, so we could do like Marty had an outfit when he's painting his house. It's like a outfit that we found for the New York marathon. And we did redid the graphics for that. And then during that same scene, Ike had a turtleneck. It was from an old Ralph Lauren ad of this guy wearing this like, you know, in the, the it was like a really thick turtleneck. I don't know if you remember those turtlenecks that were like super thick. Like they weren't knit. Like they were just like, I don't know, this is very, like early, like during 1991 and stuff like that. Like if you think of back to your t-shirts and stuff, there was no like spandex really in it. And so they were just like really thick sort of cottony materials. So we <laughs> took remember. a lot of time to like source those materials to like make it look like it's supposed to look. Because in my experience, if you try to cheat it, like, for example, if you're trying to do 90s, like there's a way the clothes is cut, even t-shirts, there's a way the fabric feels the heaviness of it, that if you don't sort of buy the exact fabric to make it, it won't look right, you know, and so we spent a lot of time going through those details, making sure that, you know, even the simplest thing, like all of Marty's t-shirts, all of Ike's shorts were made because we couldn't find pleated shorts that look like that time period, you know? And so like that was a lot of fun to sort of get into these sort of casual things that had to be like really sourced out and made. Basketball was really fun, but also funeral was challenging too. I mean, obviously Bonnie looked amazing and we had a really good time of, you know, sort of dressing everyone for that. But like I, <laughs> with Paul, he's supposed to have a funeral outfit. So we did a lot of research on like what time, like the suit of that time period looked like. And I was like, he needs a three button suit. This is what we should stress about the time period. I get very like honed in on things. We were having trouble. There was a suit that we did like that didn't really fit him that well. And so um, 
the person who sourced fabric brought back this fabric and we we're like, it's great. But then we couldn't see under the fluorescent lights. And that's, this is like a mistake. That's, this is what you never look at your colors under fluorescent lights for fabrics, because we were like, is it Navy? Is it black? Like what's happening? <laughs> and then we, we compared it to like all the navies in black in the office. And then literally like five people were like looking at this fabric swatch and we were like, okay, no, 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 it's black. It's black. It's black. So suit was made full on like specialty suit, completely made from scratch from a suit maker, goes to set morning of Paul's personal customer. So they, ha they had personals, you know, during COVID. And she was like, is he wearing a Navy suit for the funeral? And we were like, what? <laughs> so we went in the, <laughs> so we went in to the trailer and oh my God, the suit that we had made for him from scratch is navy it's a really really dark navy but it's navy in the daylight and i was like oh, god i hate this and so i had to like run to our background trailer that had like extra suits and like literally was like we measured every suit and was like okay okay this probably feels right for paul okay so we got a double breasted we checked out the sleeves of his other jackets and so we did a quick tailoring and then he put it on and actually fit but it was the most nerve wracking, like this was literally like half an hour before we have to go. I was gonna cry because <laughs> it was not a box, but things like that happen. It was like, it's just so, it's so weird. And I prep a lot. I pride myself on like being like the taskmaster at prepping and like being very, very prepared. And it was just one of those things. I was just like, it's so weird. We made Paul a sweatshirt from scratch that says Southampton. So it was like specialty dyed yellow, this yellow that was like really popular during the 1990s. And we actually had it stitched, you know, those stitched um, sweatshirts that you have during the 90s. So it was like stitched with a lighthouse and it says Southampton, except nobody checked. And because I'm not from the East Coast, I didn't know that Southampton was one word, not two words. <laughs> and, no, and it didn't make it on screen. And so there is my favorite sweatshirt that we took so much time to make that has Southampton as two words. <laughs> you know, Alan, I wouldn't know that either. I mean, that goes to show you, you gotta dot your I's and cross your T's on everything. There's not a moment to relax because even with the best intentions, and let me tell you, these things were like beautiful looking. It was just, it was heartbreaking. So Helen, before we move into the 2010s, a lot of things you're talking about, being able to make things, uh, the extensive wardrobe and the effort that went into it. It sounds like you had a lot of support from the show. I mean, it was pretty am amazing. You know, like obviously like working on American Horror Story and things like that, like the budget was um, was big, you know, in Station Eleven. It wasn't even like this was the biggest budgeted thing that I've ever done. It was just like a lot of times you don't have enough prep time to do it. But because Georgia had written all the scripts, like I knew what was happening. And so like I was allowed prep time to make all these things to sort of really get into this process. And it's like, this is some very technical things that people don't know. It's like they allowed us one person to just go around and find fabrics. A lot of shows don't have that, you know, even that resource to do. And so having that was like really wonderful. But having prep time means that all of Ike's sweaters were knit from scratch. All of his 80s sweaters were completely knit, hand knit from scratch by a woman in Los Angeles. And it takes three weeks per sweater. It's like, you know, usually in production, especially for TV, three weeks is like a million years. Like you don't get that luxury. 
I think that was my favorite part of it was because the scripts were written so ahead of time. There wasn't like any sort of seriously big changes that I could do it in this fashion. I also think that with block shooting, productions sort of trust that process more. You sort of have to spend the money more upfront versus like if you were just shooting straight. Again, I think that's why I love the team, the production team, all the producers, because they just trusted that I knew what I was doing. I knew how to handle a budget. I know where to use it, like that type of thing. So Helen, talk to me then about the costume decisions about the late 2000s, early 2010s, which is really the end of these characters' arcs. So a thing that we were thinking about in general was also like, because the 80s started out quite muted, that as the tone in the series gets weirder and weirder, we would amp up the colors more and more. And this is where the decades really helped us because during sort of that 2008, 7, 11 time period, men were dressing very colorful. I mean, that was sort of like what the clothes were like. If you could kind of remember, it's when like color jeans were popular, like men were wearing like colorful jeans. But also with Marty, I really wanted him to feel like he's gained some sort of confidence through this fog of Ike. And so we tried, we started to dress him in brighter colors and more saturated and more vibrant to show how he was sort of coming into his own, even though it was sort of like a process. But it also made him super charactery, which I really, really love. I don't know if this has anything to do with the character development, but we got him these Crocs and we were really into them. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it, was, it was very much about sort of taking Marty from that sort of sad tone, especially in the later part of the 90s when he was wearing all that green. So it was very like one tone to something more vibrant to show him standing up to Ike. And then with Ike, we were looking at just like a bunch of Ralph Lauren sort of ads from that time period. We looked at it all throughout the 90s for Ike, but especially during that time period to sort of amp up his colors too, because he was becoming more and more, I think, out of control in many ways. And then for sort of like the final sequence when they are a lot older in the court scene, Paul wanted to be like stripped bare, like he's really had a hard time sort of with this court case. And so that was probably the only time where Ike wore a black suit, like a dark color, because he did want to feel kind of not of himself at the end of this, you know? And we tried really hard. Paul was wearing like a suit that was like a 52 chest, you know, to like really make it baggy and sad and uncoordinated. Whereas Marty, we chose like a more fitted suit to feel like he's the one that came out at the end, sort of more himself and more put together. Also, did you know that he got his license taken away, Ike, finally? Yes. Uh, at the end of the show, they wrote that. And I actually didn't know that because like while we were filming, it was still pending. And we were like, how is this still happening? <laughs> but yeah, we did, we really, really did want sort of like a humongous tonal shift towards the last two episodes of the show. Now, speaking of tonal shift, there's one scene that really doesn't connect to any decade at all, really. <laughs> and that's when they're, they're personifying the writing of the book with this film noir scene. So the film noir scene was, was kind of fun because, you know, they wrote it as sort of this fantastical um, fantasy sequence. I looked at a lot of images and I was like, oh, Paul should be like, bogey 
And so we, Humphrey Bogart, so we tried really hard to find him that like perfect 40 Sue. And then we also did his fitting. We shot the pictures in black and white so we could show the DP what it would look like in black and white because that was really important because a lot of times like colors will surprise you in black and white, like patterns. Like we made his tie and like the pattern, sometimes it would just surprise you like what it would look like, you know, because colors have different saturation. But with like Marty, again, we tried to make it a little bit like Paul had a full, beautiful pinstripe suit on with like a beautiful, you know, 1940s coat. And then with Marty, we really wanted it again for him to feel like awkward. And so his suit was a little bit too small. It wasn't a complete suit. His hat was a little bit weird. You know, sometimes I, I didn't, I, you know, sometimes I don't know what hair and makeup would do, but they added that mustache. And I, was, I thought it was like so funny when I, when I saw it, I was like, oh, that's, that's really bizarre. <laughs> but again, it was, it was more like retaining their character. So Marty's awkwardness, especially in Ike's version of the story, right? Marty is always going to be not flattering and this awkward person. And so we did want to show that even in this fantasy, Ike is sort of the handsome hero and his image is always going to be the handsome hero. So it's from his perspective and Marty's always going to be sort of like the jokey sidekick. So Helen, in, in discussing the series and the effort you brought to it, very clear the importance of the little things and the small details. But you've gone on to work on another show. You've had some time since being in the trenches, if you will. What's it like to step back <laughs> and then see the sum of the parts? Well, I love the series, first of all. I think they did a fantastic job. When I see it, you know, this project, I just feel like how lucky I am to have, A, like you said, gotten the resources and the support behind it to sort of make it ha as how I would imagine. But to also, again, have actors that really trust the process and trust what you're doing. But also like how amazing Georgia and Michael and Jesse were as sort of creators because they allowed, you know, me to really, really be creative and to really bring ideas and to really put forward a perspective about the time period and a perspective about these people. And I just can't help think, you know, like if it wasn't pandemic, like what else I could have done uh, with the show. But I also, while watching the show, I'm very thankful, obviously, for my crew, from all my tailors who built these amazing, wonderful things to, you know, people who source the fabric to our age or dyer to just like the whole crew for all for giving it as much attention as I think that I try to give it. Like even with background, like our background dresser, like the amount of times I made her change someone was like, <laughs> just so just so we could get as many sort of variety as we can, just because we didn't have that many background. And I really wanted to make them, you know, wonderful and cinematic. And so like all these people who like were really so devoted to this whole thing, it just like really made me appreciate because you see it on screen and like people go, oh, the costume designer, the costume designer. But it's like a lot of effort by a lot of people. And I don't feel like sometimes, you know, working in this industry gets acknowledged enough. I mean, I don't know why. I guess it's not very glamorous, again, to talk about, you know, I don't know your perspective on it. But for me, it's just like a, a good crew could make or break you. No doubt the crew is important. And it's clear you were well served on this project with all the effort that was involved. Yeah, no, definitely. So, Helen, you mentioned Station Eleven earlier. and I know that HBO Max series is, is wrapping up now. Where else can we see your work? 
Well, Station Eleven, I hope everyone did watch it because I think it was just an amazing series. It's like Shrink Next Door and Station Eleven, like by far the joys of my career, right? They're just so different, but so it's like it, both are world building. Both had amazing actors and both had show creators that really allowed me to sort of work through my process and, and really believe in what I had to bring to the table. I'm working on a series now called Beef, which I hope people will watch when it does come out. It's um, with Steven Yoon and um, Ali Wong. And I'm very excited about that because I think the writing is fantastic. And then also, you know, it's been one of my dreams to work on a project with like Asian leads, um, which I think the industry is really lacking. And so we're going through the process of now, but I hope it's also would be something people would enjoy once it comes out. Well, Helen will watch for that. And I will enjoy hearing more about your process when it comes out. Thanks so much for sharing this with us today. Thank you so much. Listeners, I hope you're enjoying Season 10. Come March, we'll be kicking off our third annual Oscar series. We've got some great episodes planned in the meantime. If you're new to the podcast, I'd encourage you to check out our catalog. It's easy to peruse past episodes at the website, blowthelineoneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. All episodes of the podcast are also now on IMDb, so you can cross-reference the film credits of my guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and rate us if you like what you hear. If you've got questions or comments, you can send email to skid, S-K-I-D, at blowtheline.biz. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Loyal listeners, you are much appreciated. If you're enjoying the season, tell your friends. We'll be back again next week. Oh, there's no question. And it's uh, clear that the folks you had on this, uh, through all this work, were really, you know, sorry, that sounds dumb. Let me think of a better thing. (laughs) You served it up for me, and then I didn't have an answer ready to go. (laughs) So, okay, by the way, we'll fix all those overlaps in post, right? It'll sound like it was smooth. So don't worry about any of that. I'll just, you know, again, I'll fix it in post. I mean, that's a big promise. Also, let me know if any of it's, like, boring. Because sometimes, you know, when you talk about, like, your work, it's like, I don't know if this is interesting to people. Like, like how how line (laughs) forms. What you're trying to set up, where the pop-up tents are, it's like all that has like an effect on well, I mean, on, on how your day goes. <laughs> Helen, as far as I'm concerned, you've got an audience of one, and it's all very interesting <laughs> to me about how you set it all up. So just so yeah, please keep it going. <laughs>